This is an Odyssey original. Okay, we have to level with you. This is Coronavirus Daily, and I'm Charles Feldman, and Mike Simpson's along with me. But we're not going to be talking about the coronavirus, at least for a little while, because... Because there's something else that's happening with worldwide implications. It's the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So we're going to temporarily shift the focus to that, to the invasion of Ukraine. And it's going to appear right here in this feed, just like you're used to. Now, there is seemingly no end in sight for Russia's war against Ukraine as Russian forces step up their attacks against Ukrainian cities. There still has not been any establishment of reliable humanitarian corridors for escaping civilians to use. So we will talk to a woman there who says she got out of her hometown in a suburb of Kyiv right after Russian tanks moved in. The U.S. is working with its partners in Europe on a possible ban of Russian oil imports. We'll look into what this is going to do to already high gas prices uh, here in the U.S. and we'll take the pulse of a very anxious Wall Street. The humanitarian crisis is getting worse in Ukraine as Russian troops continue shelling cities, food, water, medicine getting scarce, people getting desperate. Anastasia lives in Ukraine. She's from Irpin, right next to Kiev. But she says she left once the Russian tanks moved in, was helping people there before escaping. She's with us now. Uh, Anastasia, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share and to get the information out there. So uh, whereabouts are you uh, in in terms of position in Ukraine? I, I presume you've moved more westward or no? Yes. So in the last couple of weeks, I've had to move four times pretty much from Kiev and all the way to the west. So I'm in Lviv right now. That's our biggest city in the western Ukraine. When you had to leave your town, we mentioned it's because, you know, the Russians were getting closer. What was that like when you made that decision and what you were seeing, what you were hearing, you know, the surroundings? Um, Basically, um, I left my actual home, which is in Kiev, on the first day of war. That was when uh, the explosions and the aviation bombing started. So I I went to my parents' uh, home uh, right by Kiev, about 15 miles from the city itself. That's where we stayed for about eight days. Um, And honestly, I didn't think I would leave because we sort of believed it would be all over quickly because no one really believed it to be like a full-scale war. Everyone was like, okay, so maybe they just want to scare us to get like a more favorable negotiations position. And, you know, it's not going to be a long time. So that's why we stayed uh, close to Kiev and didn't go further. But in the eight days we stayed there, it pretty much went from like zero to 100 uh, because the fighting was happening heavily by the Hostomel airport which is uh, one of the airports in Kyiv region. And uh, we pretty much heard fighting nonstop, but it was kind of far away. It was about four to five miles. So it wasn't like right next to us. But the morning when we decided to leave, we woke up from the like from the whistle of rockets, which were flying above our house. And they literally destroyed an entire like civilian neighborhood about a mile away from us. And that's when we realized that probably if we stay if we stayed there it would be too late so we left and uh, we were actually correct because at this point uh, you said correctly there's a humanitarian crisis they're shooting civilians who are trying to flee so we literally left probably 48 hours before the catastrophe broke out so you're traveling with how many people from your family 
Uh, well, our parents, like, I'm traveling with my boyfriend. Our parents are already abroad, so my mom is in Poland, and his parents are planning to cross in the next days. And you? Um, no, we're definitely not going anywhere. We're going to stay here. And why are you going to stay? Well, because it's our home. I really feel like it's Russians who should leave. They have this whole huge country they can occupy any time, and this is our country, so we're going to stay here. Uh, you mentioned your boyfriend. How, how old are you guys, by the way? Uh, I'm 22, and he's 26. 26. Uh, is he now engaged in fighting? Because, uh, as you know, uh, I, I guess most of the men there, between certain ages anyway, are actively involved in the fight. Uh, right now, our army is very well prepared, so we don't have uh, like we don't have to mobilize all the men in the country. Right now, the only men who are in war uh, and in combat are the ones who actually have military experience. So they have fought before in the east, or you know, in any other circumstances. So he doesn't have any hands-on experience in fighting, so he wasn't mobilized. He's not literally not needed right now. So if you come to uh, the military place, like to to ask whether you can serve they're they're just like leave your phone number but we're set so what is your plan you say you know what this is my country i'm staying obvious reasons um you want to help how are you going to try to help because this is some of what you were trying to do before you had to move and then move again uh, yes, yeah, so what what we're going to do to help from here is uh, we're going to definitely volunteer to do uh, to make the nets for our posts, for military posts, for tanks, to cover them from aviation. We're going to don donate blood. We're definitely helping financially to uh, Red Cross, to our army, to territorial defense, so they have money to buy uh, weapons and food just generally. Uh, we also engage in informational war actively as well because we're here right now. We know best what's happening here. So like such interviews is what I've been doing lately as well. And of course, we're helping refugees. Uh, Lviv, where I'm at right now, took in about 300,000 people in the last week. And uh, the city itself is not that big. So they really need help in coordinating these people around. So we've been helping in those directions. Uh, you and your boyfriend, what, what do you do for a living there before the war started? Your English was very good, so, so I, I gather you've had a lot of contact uh, in your daily uh, work, whatever it is that you do, with people who speak English. Oh, yeah. Well, I lived in the U.S. actually for a year, uh, so I was an exchange student in Illinois. Uh, that's probably where I got my Midwestern accent, just a bit. Uh, my boyfriend is a lawyer, so he works at a bank, uh, the biggest bank in Ukraine, and I work in IT, so software development services, and I work in sales. You know, you sound okay and eager to do things to help, but but what is it like to, because this is not a situation that, that is easy uh, for obvious reasons, to know that a mile away from your parents, you know, it's gone and was bombed, and then to know so many civilians have been killed. I mean, emotionally, how are you doing? Uh, honestly, we uh, I feel like I can speak for a lot of people who left uh, Kiev and other regions right now. We feel a lot of guilt because it really feels like we left our home in a trouble. 
And that's really something that's one of the reasons I'm so actively involved in all these like helping and volunteering because it really helps me cope with the, what happened. Uh, overall, I think it's it's just it feels like it's been a very long day since the 24th when the war started. And up, uh, up until now, we are all exhausted. Uh, we really want this to be over. But at the same time, uh, I really believe in our army. I really think we can win this. And uh, I just I, I try not to let myself think about anything else at this point, because I know that uh, I have literally I am so not in the worst place in Ukraine right now. There are so many other people who feel worse. And right now, just feeling bad about myself and what happened to my life is really not, not the time and the place. Do you have a kind of um, red line after which if it if the Russians cross it, you and your boyfriend would make the uh, decision? Maybe he couldn't, I, I suppose, but you could uh, just leave and go to Poland and join your other relatives? Um, honestly, I, I I don't think I ever thought about this because we really just plan hour by hour at this point. Um, I think that at this point, I, I don't think there's that red line, which would happen. I mean, obviously, probably if they were already in the city here with their flags, but at that point, it'd probably be late. So I don't know. I don't think there's a red line in my head right now that would make me leave. Is the idea just to keep on moving if you have to keep on moving and keep going, you know, towards the West. And I guess a lot of people are probably doing that. A lot of people are moving, but they have great reasons to do that. They have kids or older parents or, you know, something like people they need to take care of and literally who cannot handle anything without them. Uh, I don't have anything like that. So I have, I guess, the luxury to stay here and pretty much throw all my resources at helping the army and helping the volunteers. I know you said that 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 you uh, believe and others that we have spoken to on this program in the past few days uh, in Ukraine have also expressed uh, their belief that that Ukrainians will win out. But uh, what would happen, in your view, if the Russians succeed in taking over certainly the capital, but even if they don't, they are already being very effective in the southern part of the country uh, and in terms of access to the sea? The thing is that, that that's really the point of this war. They can literally never take over. There is not going to be a single person in this city who's going to want to be in Russia. There's not going to be a single person who's going to give up. Like 70-year-old grandmas uh, shooting down drones with the jar of cucumbers. Like, seriously, this is this is not the place where they can win. Even if they destroy the entire army and all the men and all the cities, Every single person who's still going to be here is going to fight them until their last breath. So I really have no idea what they're doing here because they cannot win this. Anastasia, thank you so much for talking to us. Stay safe and, and we hope we can speak again, okay? Thank you. Thank you. I hope so too. Anastasia there lives in Ukraine, has uh, been on the move four times, she said, but the plan right now is just to do everything she can to, to help the effort. The Dow has taken a big tumble, down almost 800 points today over fears the U.S. economy could have a major slowdown because of the war in Ukraine. With us, Ron Insano, senior analyst and commentator on CNBC, host of the Market Scoreboard Report. Ron, uh, should we brace ourselves for more turbulence uh, in the markets for as long as this war in Ukraine continues? Yeah, and we may see more of it still, guys. I, you know, you've got the Federal Reserve meeting next week. It'll 
unless something changes dramatically and, and they're in a quiet period and couldn't signal it necessarily, even if they were to change their minds, they're going to raise rates by a quarter point next week. The situation in Ukraine is pushing commodity prices to nearly never before seen levels, things like nickel and palladium and titanium, uh, rare materials that come out of places like Russia, corn and wheat. Uh, and then, of course, most important, oil and other energy products are all skyrocketing. And so that not only raises uh, the specter of, of bigger inflation numbers, but also it cuts into consumers' pocketbooks and risks, as you suggested, uh, a slowdown in the economy while the Fed's raising rates. So it, it, it's looking down uh, the barrel, uh, two barrels of, of a loaded gun right now. So uh, we're what, firmly in a, a bear, or I was kidding before, a Russian bear market? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I think, you know, these measurements are always a little fuzzy, if you will, but um, the NASDAQ is now 20% below. Again, this has happened before in the last several weeks, below its all-time high. Uh, the S&P and the Dow around 10 12% below their most recent records. So they're firmly in a correction. The NASDAQ's in what we call bear market territory. And the average stock is down a lot as well. So a lot of damage is being done in the market. And so I'm, I'm of the mind that we're in the midst of a bear market that will not only now be – you know, dependent on how far we go down, but how long it takes to recover, which is, you know, again, one of the hallmarks of a bear market. It's both price and time. So we're going to start seeing that word stagflation in a lot of news reports again? Yeah, sadly. And, 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 and in a sense, I mean, I, I don't believe it to be entirely analogous to, to the 70s and the 80s, but you do have uh, commodities just going wild on, on this, uh, you know, war in Ukraine, uh, even more so than when we had the pandemic-induced supply shortages that, you know, created a, 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 an absence of computer chips and shortages in automobiles. And we have a, you know, mismatch in housing supply and demand. This just makes everything worse. And so it, it, it's, it, in my mind, it, it's a bit of a clumsy word because in 1980, Unemployment was 11 percent. Inflation was 13 percent. And interest rates were double digits. Right now we've got interest rates down, um, unemployment down, but prices up. So uh, it's an inflationary environment that the Fed and other policymakers are going to have to deal with, maybe more harshly than we'd really enjoy. Ron Inzana, senior analyst and commentator at CNBC and host of the Market Scoreboard Reports. Russia's announced another limited ceasefire to set up these safe corridors to let civilians escape cities that have been under attack. Uh, Ukrainians dubious about the effectiveness, to say the least. Uh, this comes as Russia and Ukraine say they've made not a lot of progress during a third round of talks. We have journalist Phil Itner on the line with us, who is in Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, the latest from where you are. Well, latest where I am is uh, really discussions about a potential ceasefire uh, and uh, a, a way to create corridors for civilians to exit uh, four major cities uh, within Ukraine. Um, the uh, potential for peace talks seems to have stalled. Uh, the Russians have come out with a proposal uh, that is clearly unacceptable to the to the Ukrainians, including things like uh, you know immediately laying down all their weapons and uh, uh, rewriting their constitution to include neutrality, so they'll never join NATO or the EU. Um, and you know clearly Moscow knows that Kiev won't accept that. So we are very far off 
from any kind of settlement here on the ground in Ukraine. You mentioned the routes out of the out of the country or, or for these um, humanitarian reasons, but as we were saying earlier, they go into Russia or they go through Belarus, and this is not where people want to go. No, absolutely right. Uh, I mean, this is this is another uh, way that the Russians are clearly trying to appear to be sensible, but they are in no way really actually presenting any kind of solution. Uh, the corridors that they propose, uh, as you mentioned, would go into areas where many Ukrainians don't want to go, Russia or Belarus. And in addition to that, um, there are a number of reports of the Russians breaking ceasefires and actually purposefully firing on um, civilians. There is a, there's a, a photo uh, that uh, a colleague of mine, Lindsay Adario, put out on the New York Times today. Uh, it is a very disturbing uh, photograph, um, and it shows a family that was trying to escape from one of these besieged cities and came under fire, and, and nearly the entire family was killed. It's, it's incredibly disturbing. But those stories are spread throughout Ukraine, and so even if they do open corridors, I think many civilians are going to be reluctant to do it because they've heard the tales of these uh, breaches in the ceasefire and uh, a clear targeting of civilians, which, of course, at some point will have to be investigated by presumably The Hague. So, Phil, if the Russians succeed in, in quote, taking over Ukraine, and I'm not quite sure what taking over would, would mean, it, it would seem to mean uh, endless urban warfare, would it not? Yes. Uh, that's the short answer. Um, the long answer is this. The Ukrainian people will never accept an occupation of this country again. They just won't. Um, the the overwhelming attitude, uh, the uh, sense of determination that these people have, um, there will be a first there will be a conventional war in a worst case scenario. First, there will be a conventional war that the overwhelming might of the Russian military might very well win, and they might occupy cities around this country. But then there will be an insurgency. Uh, or, well, First, I suspect, actually, there will be a pullback to a more secure location where I am in Lviv, um, which is a great deal uh, distance uh, away from where the, the combat is happening now. And they will mount a, a, a last kind of you know, the last fort defense in this Western enclave here around Lviv. And then if that should fall and uh, there is no front line, it will turn into an insurgency. I'm telling you, the Ukrainians will never, never accept an occupation of this country. And the, the sooner that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin realize that uh, and come to some sort of settlement, uh, the better, because uh, that's just not going to happen here. Phil Itner, who is uh, with us from Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, thanks. The U.S. and its European allies have been talking about banning Russian oil imports because of the war in Ukraine, even though Europe is deeply dependent on Russian oil and natural gas. Reuters reporting that allies there are perhaps open to the idea, but that seems to be a sort of minority of the reports. This comes as the gas prices are already really high. Record price levels are approaching them across a lot of the country, close to $6 a gallon here in Southern California. Richard Spears, vice president of the oil field consultancy company Spears & Associates, 
Uh, Richard, if the U.S. decides not to wait for its European allies and, and cuts off Russian oil imports on its own, what does that mean for gas prices here? So the question is how much oil can come out of the ground anywhere else? And uh, here in the United States, we're one of the top producers of oil and gas. Most of it comes from what we call the Permian Basin, which is out in West Texas, a little bit of New Mexico. But also you've got another, gosh, 20 states produce a little oil and gas here and there. I live here in Oklahoma and it's one of the, one of the places to go. So the question is, if you cut off the Russian oil, and that's you know six or seven million barrels a day, can you make up six or seven million barrels a day? And the answer, the short answer is no. Here in the United States, we pump every barrel of oil that we possibly can every day of the week. We, we've been going full out ever since the recovery of the economy in the US and around the world, gosh, for the last year. And so every barrel of oil that can be produced is being produced. And the only way you can get an incremental barrel is if you drill another hole in the ground. And what so about, should, go, go ahead. Well, you, so your question should be, are we going to ramp up drilling activity in order to make uh, more oil come out of the ground? Well, that's one way of doing it. But what about all the reserves that the president says the U.S. and our allies intend to uh, unleash? You know, it, th those reserves are trapped in rock that's about, you know, two miles under your feet. Same thing in Saudi Arabia, same thing in West Texas, same thing in Oklahoma. These are not pools like a big old swimming pool that you just stick a straw down into and suck out of. This, the oil and gas is trapped into the tiniest little spaces between the rocks. We call it porosity. And to move from each little tiny space, uh, that movement highway is called permeability. And, uh, and it requires just so much work and so much investment to make that happen. Here in the United States, it takes about six or seven or eight million dollars per new well in order to make oil come out of the ground. And the oil, once you get the well drilled, it'll produce for 50 years. But to make an incremental amount of oil come out of the ground, you know, more oil tomorrow than today, you have to drill a well, then you have to crack the rock open, we call that fracturing, and then you have to put a pump in it. And the average amount of time between spudding a brand new well, that means punching, starting to punch the hole in the ground, to the first oil coming out of the ground is about 12 months. So the price signal says right now, go back to work, go drill some holes in the ground. But the drilling rig that went to work today will have oil come out of that well in February or March of next year. Not as it easy doesn't as happen the, uh, overnight. Not as easy as a swimming pool in the straw, like you said. No. Um, so is this why we're seeing these uh, talks of the possibility of maybe the administration easing the sanctions on, you know, Venezuela so they can start producing more, sell that on the international market? They're, they're looking for places to make up the difference from Russia if they say no more to the Russians. Well, right. If, if, uh, if they've paid any attention to the oil industry in Washington, and really they, it doesn't appear that they have, but if they paid any attention to it, they know that there is not the ability of the industry to just turn a valve. It, it can happen with time, but, but, uh, but Wall Street and all the governments of Europe and, uh, and here in the Western part of the, of the world have told the oil industry to quit drilling for oil. We wanna go completely to renewables. And so the banks are closed to us. The, uh, the capital markets are closed. 
So any additional work we do has to be self-generated. We have to produce a little oil, sell a few drill bits, use that money then to drill another well. So we can't go borrow money to, to make this happen. So is the bottom line, Richard, the, the U.S. and the Allies just, in your view, what? We won't end up banning Russian oil because it's just too, too costly and time-consuming to make up for it? You know, I uh, I was listening to your news uh, to Phil, who was just talking from uh, Lviv, Ukraine a bit ago, and and I spent an hour yesterday on the phone with uh, with a missionary we support in Lviv, and my wife and I are supporting the Christian community in Lviv right now to uh, to save them. It seems uh, it seems unimaginable that we would continue to fund Russia by buying their oil. And, uh, and do it because we, we want low cost energy. It just seems crazy to me that we would do that. But the alternatives are terrible, right? We, we give that guy back down in Venezuela sort of free reign and hey, destroy your country, give us your oil. Uh, Iran, you guys are bad actors, but we want your oil, we want cheap energy, so give us yours. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty tough situation that any politician is uh, trapped in. Richard Spears, Vice President, the oil field consultancy company Spears & Associates. Richard, thanks for talking to us. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Stitcher.